the seats in front of you. And if you're not familiar with the Bible and you don't know quite how to make your way around in the Bible, um, we're going to start out on page 121 in those Bibles. So if you're taking a Bible from the seat in front of you, just turn to one page 121. And I've got to tell you, those Bibles begin numbering the pages two different times. So you want to find the 121 that's in the second half of the Bible because there's going to be two pages 121 in those Bibles. But this is page 121 in the New Testament of those Bibles if you're not familiar with the Bible. Follow along with me here in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, as I read verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verse number 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. The title of the message this morning is The Believer's Assurance, Peace with God. The Believer's Assurance, Peace with God. Please pray with me. Our great eternal God, again, we come into your presence and we speak with you. We understand, great, almighty, holy God, that the only means by which we can come into your presence is through the blood of Jesus Christ. The only merit that we would have that give us this privilege of speaking with you and knowing that you hear us, even right now, you hear us speak. The only merit we have is the righteousness of Christ. For those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ's death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, we've also been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's because of having been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we who are yet sinners can enter into the presence of absolute holiness. It's because we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we know that we are reconciled with you. As we study Scripture this morning and, and understand what it means to be at peace with you, we, we come to realize that there was a time when we were at enmity with you. And it wasn't even so much that you declared us to be your enemy, but we declared you to be our enemy. We lived at enmity with you. There was great hatred on our part towards you. And you and your great love worked out a means by which we could be reconciled to you. 
We who declared war on you, we who declared you to be our enemy, you did what it took for us to be reconciled with you, for that enmity to be abolished, for that hatred to be wiped out and removed. You reconciled us to do that. And I pray, Father, that you would, you would help us to comprehend the magnitude of, of the reality of being at peace with you. Help us, Father, to really understand what that means this morning, to be at peace with you. We pray this in your Son's holy name. Amen. We come back here to Romans chapter 5, verse number 1. We want to just do a little bit of review here in our introduction. First of all, we look at this word, therefore, and we realize that that word is introducing a new subject matter. It's introducing a new section in our study of the book of Romans. It could be a major section. It could be a subsection. Um, I really think it's somewhat of a major section. And as I explained last week, I think what Paul is doing here is he is introducing a section on assurance. He wants his readers to understand how the doctrine of justification by faith can give one assurance that they're made right with God, can give one assurance of salvation, can give one assurance of the reality and the future and the hope of heaven one day. And this assurance comes from the results of the doctrine of justification by faith. The doctrine of justification by faith has certain results. And when we look at those results, we realize that those results give us assurance. And the first result that we are looking at, that because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. Look there again in verse number 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the goal of the message this morning is for you to continue to grow in your understanding of what it means to be at peace with God so that you will have an assurance that gives you a peace in the world so that your being at peace with God would give you an assurance that helps you to experience the peace of God. There is a peace with God and there is the peace of God. I want us also to take just a little bit of time to consider to, to think about the world's pursuit of peace. What do we think about when we think about the world's pursuit of peace? First of all, the world has the wrong source of peace. The world doesn't understand that peace comes from God. The world seeks peace among men, but doesn't realize that that is impossible apart from peace with God. So as the world is seeking peace, and we are living at a time today when, when peace is, is the pursuit of peace and the, the cry for peace is, is everywhere. But the problem with the world's concept of peace is they don't understand the source of peace. You can't have peace until you have peace with God. Just listen to what the angels said to the shepherds when they were told that the Messiah was being born. Listen to what they said. Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Here's the angels. Glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace among men with whom he is pleased. See, the angels understood there's, no, there's not going to be any peace among men unless God is pleased with them. What does it take to please God? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because he who comes to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. That's what it takes to please God. You have to have faith. And it begins with having faith. Faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only means to be forgiven of your sin. 
It begins with having faith in the righteousness of Christ as the only means to be made right with God. That's what it means to, to have favor with God. That's what it means for God to be pleased with you. You cannot have peace among the brethren, among the world, among anyone. There cannot be true peace between a husband and wife if that husband and wife do not have peace with God. It must begin with a peace with God. So one of the problems with the world is they have a wrong source of peace. They don't understand that peace can only come when one has peace with God. That's the only way there'll ever be peace among men on this earth is when the men on this earth have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Tells us as a church, our number one priority is what? The gospel. The gospel. If we want peace on earth, we focus on the gospel, preaching the gospel. They also have a wrong view of peace. They don't even really truly understand the concept of peace. The world's concept of peace is the cessation of hostilities. That's all they mean. We just want people to stop fighting. The biblical concept of peace is the removal of the enmity. That's the biblical concept of peace. It's not just the cessation of the hostilities. It is the removal of the enmity. When through faith in Jesus Christ, the non-Jew and the Jew were brought together, they didn't just cease their hostilities. They, the enmity was removed. The hatred was removed. And there was love for one another. There are many, many stories. And I remember my grandfather giving me a book of a pilot in World War II. He was shot down and he was in the... The, in the Japanese um, concentration camps or, or prisoner camps and treated very, very poorly. We don't have to go into the detail. You know how, how the American prisoners could be treated by the enemy. And then after coming out of, of prison, he, he was a Christian, tried to demonstrate Christ. He became a missionary right back to the same area where he was, he was held a captive, where he was imprisoned. And the person that was inflicting all that pain on him, he too became a pastor. He too became a Christian. And the two of them are ministering together now. There is no enmity with them. It's not just that the, the, the hostility ceased. The enmity was gone. See, that's biblical peace. Biblical peace is the removal of the enmity. So the world doesn't understand the source of peace. The world doesn't understand the definition of peace. And the world has a faulty sense of, of, of a way of bringing about peace. The, the facilities... The, the, what facilitates peace in the world is all wrong. The UN is supposed to bring about peace. That's that their, their objective, to try to bring about peace. Well, part of the problem with the, the UN is they have a wrong philosophy. They believe in an enlightenment philosophy. They believe that if we just reason enough, if we just talk enough with people that are hostile, that we can encourage them, we can persuade them to, to um, uh, drop their arms and to have peace. They're depending on human reasoning. They're depending on the enlightenment. They're depending on the fact that they believe that men are basically good. Maybe you heard our, our new Speaker of the House say that the problem with mankind is, is not weapons. It's not this or that. The problem with mankind is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. He's, he's right on. That's the problem. There is a heart issue. Those that are in control of the UN, they don't understand that. They don't understand the, the wickedness of the heart. They think they can actually talk people into peace. And then the other faulty thing with the UN is, is the Security Council. You have those five permanent members. And if any one of the five permanent members disagrees with the decision, the decision isn't made. Well, who are the five permanent members? You have China, France, Russia, 
UK, and the US. Now, what chance do you think there's ever going to be when all five of them agree on anything? That's never going to happen. So the UN can't accomplish anything. And so relying upon governing officials, relying upon human institutions to bring about peace is never going to work. There's only one way to bring peace, and that's to preach the gospel. And we continue to preach the gospel, and we pretend to preach the gospel until Jesus Christ returns. And when he returns, he will bring peace on this earth. There will be no peace on this earth. There will be no peace among all humanity until Christ returns. So our goal is not even peace among all humanity. Our goal is, number one, to bring the sinner who is at enmity with God to bring them to a point where they recognize their sin and confess their sins and trust in Jesus Christ and they're made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. They're justified before God and they have peace with God. That's our number one goal. To preach the gospel that mankind, that sinners might have peace with God. And as they have peace with God, to show them how to continue to live their life that they might have the peace of God. That is the goal of the church. Justification by faith provides assurance of salvation because it results in one being at peace with God. Justification by faith provides assurance of salvation because it results in being at peace with God. And we spent months talking about justification by faith. But I feel like it's always important to just at least brush over it one more time. What does it mean to be justified by faith? To be justified, what does it mean to be justified? You stand before the judge and you're being tried. You're going to find out whether you're guilty or whether you're not guilty. Whether what you did was justified or whether it wasn't justified. You stand before God, the holy judge, and he says, justified. You are justified. You are not guilty. Now, how is it that I, a guilty sinner, how can I, who am definitely guilty, how is it that God can ever say not guilty? He says, not guilty, number one, because the punishment that my sin deserves was paid by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went to the cross, and God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin. What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus became a sinner? No. Jesus didn't become a sinner. In a very broad sense, what that means is God treated Jesus like a sinner. He put my sins on his son, and he treated his son like the sinner I am. How does a holy God treat sinners? He pours his wrath out upon them. That's the only just thing a holy and righteous God can do is to pour out the wrath upon the sinner because that's what the sinner deserves. I deserve God's wrath. He poured that wrath out upon his son. That's what it means to be justified before God. It means that Jesus Christ took my wrath. And when I trust in Jesus Christ, payment for my sins. My sins are forgiven, and I'm no longer under the wrath of God. I'm not under the wrath of God, but I'm not yet right in the eyes of God. I'm not yet justified. I am no longer under condemnation, but I'm still a sinner. I can't have access to God. I'm still a sinner. I'm not yet right with God. My sins are forgiven, but I'm still a sinner. So what, what can be done? Well, just like God took my sins and put them on his son and treated his son like the sinner I am, so God 
will take the righteousness of his son and put it on me and treat me like the righteousness that his son is. That is the the miracle of justification. I, a sinner, am forgiven of my sin. I'm declared not guilty because God no longer sees me as a sinner. He no longer treats me as a sinner. He sees me as he sees his son, and he treats me as he treats his son. That's what the doctrine of justification by faith means. And what Paul is telling us now, that that doctrine, that justification by faith means you have peace with God. You have peace with God. And the goal here this morning is for you to continue to grow in your understanding of what it means to be at peace with God, that you will grow in your understanding of what it means to be assured that all your hope, all your energies, everything you fix your life on, everything in life, everything that happens to you would all be filtered down through this absolute assurance. But I have peace with God. I'm right with God. I have salvation. Yes, I'm going through a very, very difficult time now. Yes, life is very, very hard, but I'm right with God. I'm justified before God. I have assurance. I have peace with God. And being at peace with God and having this assurance and understanding this result of justification by faith, I can get through this. I can endure anything. I can go through anything because of the assurance my having peace with God gives me in my salvation. So let's continue to consider the peace of God. There is subjective peace. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the message in a little bit. We talked about it at the beginning of the message last week. Um, that's a peace of God that's dependent on the thoughts and actions of man. There is the peace of God. That is a dependent peace. It's dependent upon the thoughts and the actions of man. Your ability to experience the peace of God will be determined by your thoughts and your actions. Your thoughts and your actions will determine the amount of the peace of God that you experience. But when Paul says we have peace with God, he's not talking about peace of God. He's talking about peace with God. He's talking about an objective peace. It's an objective peace. It, it, it cannot be changed by my thoughts or my actions. It is set in stone. It is objective. He says here it is through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that in a little more also in, in detail here in just a little bit. But it is objective peace. We see it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of God to dwell in Jesus Christ. And through Him, that is through Jesus Christ, it was the Father's good pleasure through Jesus Christ to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross through Him. Having made peace through the blood of His cross through Him. That is objective. Christ went to the cross. He died for our sins. We have peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. You can't change that. That's done and over with. It happened. It is complete. It is finished. So that peace with God, once you experience it, it cannot be taken away from you. It doesn't depend on who you are. It depends on what Christ did on the cross. It depends on who He was. He was fully God. And fully God and fully man went to the cross to pay for your sins. And you have peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. You cannot change that. That's an objective peace. Now what I would like us to continue to do is just look at four thoughts on what it means to have peace with God 
that we need to reason through. i got four thoughts that I want us to think about. I want us to reason through these four thoughts. The first one we looked at last week, so let's just review that real quickly. Is the unbeliever really an enemy of God? I want us to think through that again. You have to come to a settled conviction on this, friends. As much as your, your inner being might fight against it, you have to come to the settled conviction that all unbelievers are enemies of God. Real quickly, we looked at Ephesians 2.3. It says the unbeliever is a child of the wrath of God. The unbeliever is a child of the wrath of God. Ephesians 4.17, the unbeliever is alienated from the life of God. He can't even begin to experience the life of God. He's alienated from the life of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God's wrath is upon the unbeliever. There is no peace with God for the unbeliever. We saw this in Romans 1.18. Turn back there real quickly. Romans 1.18, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then he goes on to describe, and we looked at this last week, to understand that every single human being born suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Because every single human being ever born suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. What that means is the wrath of God is against all humanity. You have to begin to accept this reality. Look in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. See, before we were reconciled to God, before we had peace with God, we were enemies with God. Unbelievers are enemies of God. And they have the wrath of God poured out upon them. Look with me in Romans chapter 8, verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. The mind set on the flesh is basically the mind that is still living according to the sinful, um, depraved nature. The mind set on the spirit is the one that is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. We're, we're comparing two people here. The mind set on the flesh is the unbeliever. The mind set on the spirit is the believer. Just look through this passage and follow along with me. Find it in your Bibles and follow along with me and see the two different camps, the unbeliever and the believer. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. The unbeliever is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Unbelievers are hostile towards God. Unbelievers cannot please God. Now let's look at the other side. The believer, verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells within you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Is the Holy Spirit dwelling within you? Do you know that the Holy Spirit dwells within you? If the Holy Spirit dwells within you, then you're a child of God. If the Holy Spirit dwells within you, then you're a believer. But if you are not certain that the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you, then you are still an unbeliever. You are not a child of God. But look at the beautiful condition and state of the believer. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, that's believers, these are sons of God. They're not enmity with God. 
They're sons of God. Verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons. They are adopted children. What a beautiful picture of adoption that we just had standing before us here when the Middlestat family adopted little Anastasia into their family. She's a part of their family. She belongs to them. Carson is her, her earthly father now, and Jolene is her earthly mother. Those who are believers, they're not at enmity with God. They're not hostile with God. We are the children of God. We are adopted by God. And look what he says here in verse 15. You have received the spirit of adoption by sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Because we are no longer at enmity with God, because we have peace with God, we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. And that word Abba is the most dearest term that could ever be used in expression to God. We would, we would translate it maybe Daddy. Daddy, I need you. Daddy, help me. What was it that Jesus used to refer to his Father when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? When he's coming up against the worst temptation to not go through with the cross. He's feeling the greatest weight of the burden of becoming the sin sacrifice. And he's sensing what he's going to have to go through. What does he say? He says, Abba, Father. Daddy, Father. See, if you are justified by faith, God in heaven, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the self-existent, eternal, almighty, all-knowing, everywhere present, holy God is your Abba, Father. Because you have peace with him. But you must understand that there was a time when you did not have peace with him. And you must understand that if you have not trusted Jesus Christ as the only means for the forgiveness of your sins, and if you are not trusting in his righteousness and his righteousness alone to be made right with God, then you cannot call God your Abba Father. Then you are not a son of God. You are not adopted into God's family. You have the wrath of God upon you. You're an enmity with God. And see, it doesn't matter what you think. You cannot, you cannot rely upon your subjective feelings. Thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you are an enemy of God and you are hostile with God. Thus saith the Lord. That settles it. God said it. That settles it. Why is this peace objective and not subjective? This peace with God, why is it objective and not subjective? I kind of have already spoke about this, but let's just look at it again here right in the verse. Having been justified by faith, verse number one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is based upon one who does not change or fluctuate. It is based upon Jesus Christ. It's not based upon me. It's not based upon what I do. It's not based upon what I think. It's not based upon what other people think. It's not based upon what other people say. It's not based upon what Satan might say. It's based upon the person of Jesus Christ. And even more specifically, it's based upon his death on the cross. It's based upon the reality that while Christ was on the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God against sin. It's based upon the reality of those words that Jesus spoke when he said, it is finished. 
it is finished. What was he saying when he said it is finished? What he was saying is the work of redemption is done. What it takes to be made at peace with God, what it takes to satisfy the wrath of God, it is done. That's why this peace with God is not subjective. It is based upon the death of Jesus Christ. It is based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. It is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't undo that work. You can't grab Jesus and stick him back in the tomb. You can't go back in time and tear him off the cross. You can't erase his words. It is said, it is done, and the moment you put faith in Jesus Christ, you have peace with God, and it is an objective peace with God, and you cannot do anything to alter that once you put saving faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That is something to build your life upon. But you need to continue, and, and, I, and I continue to express this because I really believe we 21st century Christians have a hard time believing what a privilege it is to be at peace with God. Our lives tend to be easy, and our lives tend to be without trials and difficulties, and we don't really, truly appreciate what it means to be at peace with God. I don't care what happens to me, I'm at peace with God. We can't say that truly. And if we say it, we have a hard time living according to it. But that's the second thought I wanted us to consider. The first was, is the unbeliever really an enemy of God? Thus saith the Lord, yes, he's an enemy of God. The second thought, why is peace objective and not subjective? It's objective because it's based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You cannot change that. The third thought, what are the ramifications of being at peace with God? What are the ramifications of this objective being at peace with God? Here I have six um, things to consider. I have six different um, ideas to consider. What are the ramifications? Ramification number one, A, even though I'm still a sinner, God loves me. Think about that. If this being at peace with God is objective, if it's not based upon what I do, think, or say, then even though I'm a sinner, God loves me. That is absolutely true. Think about that. Think of the ramifications of what it means to be at peace with God and for that to be an objective peace. Even though you are still a sinner, God still loves you. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If God loved us and, and had his son die for us before we were believers, do you think he's not going to love us after we're believers and we're still sinners? He loved us before we were believers and we were sinners. Certainly he's going to love us even while we're still sinners after we are believers. B, another ramification. I'm at peace with God even when I give way to sinful temptations. It's one thing to be a sinner. It's another thing to give way to sinful temptations. But if my peace with God is an objective peace, then even when I give way to sinful temptations, even when I sin, I'm still at peace with God. Now, I realize that there are some people who will say, well, Dale, that's leading to antinomianism. Dale, what that is leading to is someone to just go and sin all they want. If they know they can be a sinner and God still loves them, if they know they can give in to sin and give in to temptation and still be at peace with God, why wouldn't they just keep right on sinning? Well, number one, if that is true, then the doctrine of justification by faith is heresy. Any doctrine that we hold to 
if it opens up the door and allows a person to just sin anytime they want, then that doctrine is heresy. And we know the doctrine is not heresy, so we know that is not true. It's not going to automatically lead to that. I was going to look through some of the verses in Romans chapter 6 that show this, but we're running out of time, so I'm not going to look at it. But Paul's going to spend an entire chapter, the entirety of chapter 6, is set aside to prove that the doctrine of justification by faith does not lead to willful sinning. And so that gives us even more assurance in the doctrine of justification by faith. It is a solid doctrine. If you really understand what it means to die to your sin and to live for God, you are not going to desire to sin. If you really understand what it means to be a slave of righteousness, if you understand what it means to have a solid reunion with Jesus Christ, if you understand what it means to be baptized into the person of Jesus Christ to where your life is one with His, you are going to know that you do not desire to sin. And that when you do sin, you're brokenhearted over it, you're contrite over it, and you repent of it. You don't get up and say, wow, that was fun, I'm going to go do it again tomorrow because God still loves me and I'm still justified and I'm still at peace with Him. You're not going to think that way. And when I truly became saved, nobody had to tell me that. Nobody had to tell me that because it was automatic in my life. There was an automatic change in my life and nobody had to tell me that. If you are truly born again, nobody needs to tell you to be guilty over your sin. Nobody needs to tell you that you shouldn't sin. You know you shouldn't sin. You don't want to sin, but because you are still a sinner, you give in to sin. But that does not change the reality that you still have peace with God. That's why I can preach this with absolute confidence. Because I know that if I am preaching to a truly born-again Christian, they are not going to twist that into an opportunity to continue to sin. They're going to know that this is nothing but a rich blessing. That no matter how I give into my sin, I know I still have peace with God. And my giving into that sin did not change the reality that I'm still at peace with God. Oh God, I love you. Oh Heavenly Father, how I love you. And how much deeper is going to be your brokenheartedness and your confession and your desire to get up Shake it off, not fall back into sin again. When you realize that your sin doesn't separate you from God and doesn't cause you to lose your peace with God, that's going to create within you. That's going to, the Holy Spirit is going to feed on that. He's going to feed on that, and He's going to dominate you. He's going to permeate you. He's going to control you, and you will continue to grow in Christ-likeness. The third ramification. I'm at peace with God no matter what anyone else may think. I'm at peace with God no matter what anyone else may think. If peace with God is an objective peace, then I'm at peace with God no matter what anyone else would think. It doesn't matter what you say. doesn't matter what I think. doesn't matter what Satan says. If I'm at peace with God, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. Look with me in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who is the one who condemns? That's an open statement question. Pick anybody you want. Pick your wife. Pick your husband. Pick your children. Pick your neighbor. Pick yourself. Pick Satan. Pick your coworker. Pick anybody you want. Stick them in that verse. They're condemning me. Doesn't matter. Jesus Christ is the one who intercedes. 
Jesus Christ is the one who stands there and tells his heavenly father, yes, father, I know they've sinned. Yes, father, I know that they have given into sin again. Yes, I know, Lord, they're not perfect, but father, I bore their sins. They've trusted me. They've been forgiven. They have peace with me. He is the one that is interceding for us no matter what. Look with me in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, verse number 10. This is the Apostle John. He's on the island of Patmos, and he's receiving a vision from the Lord. He writes here in verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our, our God day and night. John here is having a vision of the future, a vision of when the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ is going to come upon the earth. He's having a vision of when Christ is going to come and establish his kingdom and his power and his authority and bring about the peace that the world so wants to have. He's having a vision of that. And when that happens, when that day in the future happens, our accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. In that last part of that verse, we see what is going on day and night. Day and night, there is an accuser who's accusing us before God. We are the brethren. There's someone who day and night is accusing us before God. Look with me in verse 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when they faced, when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. Who is this accuser? It's the devil. The devil is day and night accusing the brethren. And as we get closer and closer to the time when Christ is going to return, that accusations, those accusing thoughts, words, are going to become more and more persistent and more and more consistent. He's just going to accuse more and more and more and more. But we have one who intercedes for us. No matter who's condemning us, who is that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ intercedes for us. And listen to how it is that they overcome. How is it those who are being accused, how do they overcome those accusations? As Jesus Christ is interceding for them, what are they to be doing? Verse 11, and they overcame because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. They did not love their life even when faced with death. They keep going back to the blood of the Lamb. They keep going back to the death of Christ on the cross. They keep going back to the objective matter of their being at peace with God. It's the blood of the Lamb. You just keep going back to the blood of the Lamb. Martin Luther himself, when he was in prison, the Satan would, would, would hurl all kinds of accusations about him. You know what he said? Yeah, you're right. I am that sinner. I am that person. You are absolutely right. But through the blood of the Lamb, I am forgiven. Let the accusers accuse you all they want. Yeah, we're still sinners. We're not perfect. In many ways, we're everything they say they are. But we're not putting our hope of having peace with God based upon our sin. We're putting our hope of having peace with God on the blood of the Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ. It doesn't change. As the accusations come stronger and more and more consistent, and you feel like you're under more and more fire, turn 
to what you know is the objective standard to be at peace with God, the blood of Jesus Christ. It does not change. His life given on Calvary for your sins, His righteousness clothed upon you when you trusted in Him for salvation. That's all you need to stand on. That is your argument. But Jesus, but Jesus, but Jesus. Another ramification of being at peace with God. Go back with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 32 this time. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Here's another ramification of being at peace with God. And again, this is going to start to build in us this contentment. This is going to start to build in us just exactly the value of having assurance. You need to understand the value of having assurance. I need not want for anything. If I have peace with God through Jesus Christ, I need not want for anything. The ramification of truly understanding that your justification by faith with God has brought you at peace with God and you have assurance of salvation, the, the, the understanding of that is going to result in you not having a desire or a want for anything. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God has demonstrated his love for you in a manner that is just beyond human understanding. He gave up his only begotten son. He poured out his wrath upon his son so that he, the one who we declare to be our enemy, can reconcile us to him. If he did that, will he not give us everything else we need? You really do not need to fret and worry about every, anything. If you truly understand that you've been made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ and you have peace with God, you do not need anything. You've got it all. And again, 21st century Christians, I think, really have a difficult time with that. We have a really difficult time not longing for something else in life, even something like a different husband, a different wife, a more loving husband, a more loving wife, a more godly man. I want this in my life. I want that good things. But you don't need that. You have Jesus Christ. You have peace with God. Another ramification. I need not fear anything. I need not fear anything. And how I pray that our brothers and sisters that are over there in harm's way are able to live by this. I need not fear anything. Look with me in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the God, who also intercedes for us. Now listen to verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, all this distress and this tribulation and this persecution and this famine and this nakedness and this peril and sword, in all those things, we overwhelmingly conquer. We're not afraid. We're overwhelmingly conquering through Him who loved us. Why? Here's the conviction. The conviction of the Apostle Paul. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Now get that. 
any other created thing. That would also include you. Even you can't separate yourself from the love of God. Nothing can separate yourself from the love of God. You don't need to fear anything if you know you have peace with God because you're made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. I need not fear. I need not have fear. Because I have been brought near to God. I am his adopted child. I am a son of God. I call upon him as Abba, Father, because the enmity between him and I has been destroyed. And I have peace with him. I need not fear anything. Another thought. It is only I who can prevent me from sensing the peace of God. I can't prevent me from sensing the peace with God, but I can Prevent me from sensing the peace of God. And I want us to have the peace of God. I want to go beyond having the assurance that we have peace with God. And I want that assurance to transform into experiencing the peace of God. Listen to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, is going to guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to have my heart and mind guarded in Christ Jesus? It means not to be overcome with fear, not to be overcome with anger, not to be overcome with depression, not to become overcome with anxiety, not to become overcome with, with vengeful feelings, um, revengeful feelings, not to be overcome with all those negative attitudes. How can that happen? It's when my heart and mind are guarded by the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. How do I get the peace of God that comprehends all, surpasses all comprehension? Listen to what he says. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You keep thanking God for everything. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, give thanks in all things, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You give thanks to God for all things, everything. As we will continue to study in Romans chapter 5 here, even our tribulation ends up increasing our hope, ends up increasing our joy, so we should give thanks for our tribulation. We should give thanks for our hardship. Everything. You give thanks to God for everything because you're in Christ Jesus. How does one who in Christ Jesus give thanks to God for everything? Because they know they have peace with God. Because I have peace with God, I can be thankful for everything. And when I do that, I experience the peace of God. And it surpasses my wildest comprehension. And my whole heart, mind, and soul begin governed by being at peace with God and having the peace of God. Psalm chapter 32, verse 3 through 6. We're not going to go there, but in that psalm, David does such a, a magnificent, detailed description of what he was going through when he was living in unrepentant sin. He did not have the peace of God at all because he was living in unrepentant sin. It was actually having an effect on his physical body because he who had peace with God didn't have the peace of God because he was living in unrepentant sin. So what's the solution? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Child of God, adopted child of God, 
ye who have peace with God because you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you living in unrepentant sin? Do you have a sin in your life you keep going back to? You are not going to understand the peace of God. You're going to be in turmoil. The promise is that if you confess your sins, He's faithful. He will do it every time. He's faithful. He's faithful and just. It's the right thing for Him to do. If He doesn't forgive you, then it's wrong. It's just for Him to forgive you your sins because His Son already paid for your sins. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to once again make you clean before Him so you once again can experience the peace of God. You cannot have idols in your heart and have the peace of God. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Anything that prevents you from loving God is a sin. And you're never going to experience the fullness. None of us have completely understood the fullness of the peace of God yet because we struggle loving God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and all our strength. But the more and more we can do so, the more and more we will experience the peace of God in life that surpasses all understanding. One last thought that I want us to consider. Can I be wrong about being at peace with God? Can I be wrong? Can I think I'm at peace with God, but not really be at peace with God? The answer is yes. There are a lot of people who think they're at peace with God, but they're not really at peace with God. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Paul is calling upon us to test ourselves. Examine yourself. Take a good, close look. Are you really in the faith? Do you really have faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Are you really trusting in the righteousness of Christ? Do you really have faith? Listen to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's going to come many, many people who think they have peace with God, who think they are children of God, who think they've been adopted into God's family, who've been calling upon God as Abba Father, but it's going to come that day and God's going to say, depart from me. I don't know you. There's no peace between me and you. He's going to call them to depart from him. So yes, it is possible to be wrong about whether you truly have peace with God. So what do we do? There's three questions to ask yourself. Are you trusting in your faith or in the work of Christ? Are you trusting in your faith? Are you trusting in a time when you confessed faith? I got peace with God. I confessed faith. When I was 12 years old, I confessed faith. I got faith. I got faith. I got faith. I, I, I'm, I'm saved. I know. I have faith. I have faith. I have faith. I, you're trusting in your faith. You've got to go beyond trusting your faith, and you've got to ask yourself, what do you have faith in? Are you trusting in the work of Jesus Christ? There is a difference between trusting in my faith to save me and trusting in the work of Jesus Christ to save me. 
It's not my faith that saves me. It's the work of Jesus Christ. It's my faith that applies that work to my life. It's a very minute detail, but it's very important. Do you trust in the work of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in his death on the cross? Do you believe that he paid for your sins on the cross? Are you trusting in the work of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in his righteousness alone? Do you come to the point where you realize, I can't do nothing to make myself right with God. The only way I can be right with God is to trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Make sure your faith is a faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Do you overemphasize forgiveness without paying much attention to repentance? If you overemphasize forgiveness without paying much attention to repentance, then chances are you do not have saving faith and you are not at peace with God. Yeah, I sinned again, but he forgives me. Yeah, I sinned again, but he forgives me. He'll forgive me. You know, I'm probably going to do that again tomorrow, but he'll forgive me. He'll forgive me. I'm forgiven. God's a forgiving God. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. If your attitude towards forgiveness doesn't move you to repent, then you don't have saving faith. And you're not justified by faith. And you don't have peace with God. So do you overemphasize forgiveness without ever thinking about repentance? And the last one, do you really experience guilt over your sin? If you can sin and not feel any guilt, then you need to really question whether you truly have faith. And if you don't truly have faith, you're not justified by faith, and you don't have peace with God. If you don't sense guilt over your sin, then there's a really good possibility that you don't not only not have peace with God, you're still an enemy of God. There's still hostility between you and God. You have a sense of guilt over your sin. Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We stand here before you as an ambassador for Christ. We speak for Christ. And what we speak, it's as if Christ himself would speak this. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, I am speaking for Christ. And as I speak for Christ, friends, it's as if God himself is speaking right to you. And what would God have to say we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Christ, God, through the human voice, is begging you now, be reconciled to him. God is saying, be reconciled to me. God is saying, repent of your sin. God is saying, trust in Jesus Christ. God is saying, trust Christ's death for your sin. God is saying, trust in the righteousness of Christ. God is saying, believe in Jesus Christ and be reconciled to me. It's as if God himself were begging you, quit putting it off. Please, be reconciled to me. Can you hear his voice this morning? Now is the day of your salvation. Now is the time. He's calling upon you. Repent. Believe in me. And be reconciled. Become my child. Become part of the adoptive father, family. Be one who can call upon God as Abba, Father. Let's pray.
O holy, eternal, almighty, all-knowing, everywhere present, creator of the heavens and the earth, external one yet intimately involved in every detail of our lives, our Heavenly Father. We thank you this morning for your word. We trust your spirit to use your word however you see fit. And we will trust you for that and we will leave this room continuing to strive to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. To you be all the glory and honor and praise forever and ever, almighty God. In your son's holy name, amen.